Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever time you are watching or listening to this podcast. And welcome to the Goddess Project Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carla Ionescu. And today we are going to be talking about the goddess Isis, she who resurrects the dead and saves the living. Now, often when we think about Isis, especially today and in social media or in just media overall, um, we often associate the term ISIS with the acronym, uh, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, which was given to this terrorist group by the news media because it was easier to say ISIS than that whole thing that I just said. But in fact, ISIS is actually one of the most infamous and famous goddesses of the ancient world who originated in Egypt and who took over the world, the ancient world by storm. Her temples were all over the Mediterranean, the Middle East, North Africa, and other cities. And her worship was beyond, I think, the worship of any other divinity. And I don't say that lightly. In the sense that she offered a kind of salvation, a mystery cult of salvation that is beyond what anyone else could offer. So we're going to look at some of the important aspects of ISIS, and we're going to talk about them, uh, of course. But I just want you to keep in mind how little we talk about ISIS in popular culture and in popular film, and really even in social media, unless you're into Egyptology or hieroglyphics or Egyptian history, we don't really bring her up. And I think that's, that is a great loss for us as historians and mythologists and uh, spiritualists, for example. So I hope to bring some interesting aspects of her worship to you today, and then hopefully you'll find her as interesting as I do. So let's begin with who she is and what her name refers to. So she's an ancient Egyptian goddess of love, healing, fertility, magic, the moon. She was also known as one of the Egyptian gods of the Aeneid of Heliopolis, which are the nine gods and goddesses that ruled ancient Egypt. So she is one of the major players, let's say, in the Egyptian pantheon. Um, she was later worshipped in the Roman Empire, which we're going to talk about, and numerous, numerous te uh, temples in the ancient world were built to her or in honor of her, where her initiates practiced in a mystery cult, of which we still don't have a lot of data or information, as mystery cults tend to be, but we know that it had something to do with salvation and immortality. Now, her name, like I said, unfortunately has become an acronym for this uh, modern terrorist group, but even her name Isis is actually a Greek interpretation of her or Egyptian name, which is, was either Iset or Eset, uh, depends on how uh, you might want to pronounce that. It's a debate among scholars because in hieroglyphics and in the Egyptian world, there weren't uh, vowels in the same way that we text language today. Actually, I saw a meme recently about... Um, hieroglyphics and then text language and it's something i've been thinking about for a long time because in text language or in using emoticons we don't use vowels right um and it really takes me back to 
these sort of original hieroglyphic uh I don't want to say emoticons, but, you know, images or characters um, and that interpretation of images and characters in the same way that you would interpret emoticons or even just text language without vowels today. Uh, so there is a debate about how you pronounce her name, but either way, we'll call her Isis for today. Yeah. What is in her name? So her name actually, her, her name, however you say it, refers to the queen of the throne. Okay. Um, and so in her name, um, the term throne is something that shows up repeatedly. Okay. And so her hieroglyphic, not surprisingly, is an image of a throne or an image of a sitting woman on a throne. Yeah. Um, and it often refers to her power as the keeper of the throne. Now, in ancient Egypt, the throne itself was seen as a source of power whether it's political power, spiritual power, all of the power, because the Pharaoh was seen as um, blessed by the divine, nourished by the divine, and in many ways divine him or herself when we had some female Pharaohs in Egypt. And because Isis incorporates the throne, uh, in the beginning, she was seen as the actual throne. Um, and then later she was seen as the one that nourishes the Pharaohs or breastfeeds the Pharaohs. Uh, and sometimes and often choosing the pharaohs, because of that power, she is often depicted as a throne, or like I said, a woman sitting on a throne, or as we'll talk about in a minute, when we look at her image with wings, she has a throne on an, a throne symbol on top of her head. Um, and so it, uh, in many ways, Isis then is the personification of the throne itself, and the authority over the political system that lasted three millennia um, and would eventually make her one of the most popular divinities of all time. Her symbol, actually, which is one of my favorite aspects about her, is the knot of Isis, okay? So to describe the knot of Isis, it Sorry, it looks a little bit like um, an ankh, if you've ever seen or heard of the Egyptian ankh, except that its arms curve down. Okay, so there's a there's a top kind of like the ankh, and a and um, I'm trying to describe it. Sorry for those of you who are not watching it on YouTube. Uh, there's sort of a top curve, uh, and then a, a elongated. Uh, I don't know what it would be rope, I suppose, but uh, on the other on either side there are these two pieces that come down. So it kind of represents almost, uh, if you look it up, the knot of Isis, it actually looks like a person with a head, a body, and then these two arms. Yeah. So the knot of Isis um, represents that association between knots and magical powers. And it was called a tiet, which meant um, welfare or life, the knot of life. It's all, it was also called the buckle of Isis or the blood of Isis. Now, historians say that it was called the blood of Isis because we find it in a lot of funeral rites in red or on sarcophaguses, sarcophagi um, in red. And so that is usually what we refer to when we say the blood of Isis. But the interesting aspect about this knot is that it represents the binding of life. And so Isis has the power of life and death. And we don't know too much about her priests and priestesses, but we do know 
that they were both male and female. And that one of the things that they did besides practice magic was not their hair or braid their hair. And in knotting their hair or in braiding their hair, this gave them power. And also there was a hierarchy of braids and knots. So this actually reminds me, I don't know if you guys are out there are got fans, but it reminds me of Daenerys and the braiding of her hair and how the braiding of her hair represented the, you know, how many battles she had won, how many um, assassination attempts she had survived. And uh, if you are a God fan, you know that as she progresses from the beginning of season one to season eight, she gains more and more and more knots in her hair. She doesn't cut her hair, uh, not knots, sorry, braids. Uh, and her hair becomes more and more complex um, in, in its braiding styles. So I want you to think about the importance of knots as a symbol and braids as a symbol of power associated with knots and braids as a symbol of power. Um, in the old days, there was, and I guess there continues to be some superstition around braiding chants or things into your hair. So I don't know if you have this in your family or in your culture, but you can go to a shaman in your culture or, or sometimes a, a sacred person in your culture, and they may put a spell of protection on you by nodding something into your braid, by, by putting something into your braids, like an object or something that's blessed, or when they're doing your braids, they are chanting uh, some kind of a healing or protection spell. And so it's fascinating that Isis has this knot that is associated with healing, with magic. Um, some of her priests were said to be able to have power over dream interpretation, the ability to control weather, so they could braid hair and control weather. Uh, I don't. Sorry, that doesn't. That sounds weird. But there was this belief that the way they braided their hair or the way they combed their hair could control the weather outside or the next day. So they had a great deal of power. Um, and it's because of Isis's association with magic yeah? and the use of miracles and charms and particularly words and chants. So one of the things that the priests did was use a kind of sacred language or sacred wording um, that allowed them to manipulate things like the weather, but also healing, fertility, all of the things that, that Isis is in charge of or, or responsible for. So in summary, the knot of Isis represents magical power over resurrection of life and death, but also everything that life and death encompasses. <clears throat> Excuse me. So let's get to her mythology. There are several stories about Isis mythologies. I'm going to tell you some of the most fun ones. Um, and there are numerous versions of each with small details that may change here and there. But I think that I'm going to summarize all of it for you uh, because it's super exciting and different and unique to many of the other aspects of myth that maybe we may have seen in other parts. So let's start with early Isis. So we've already discussed how she's the throne queen or the queen of the throne and in charge of the throne. Often she's associated as the mother or the wife of the pharaoh. 
And this, of course, comes out of the many traditions of her as the mother and wife of Osiris. And her, um, what's the word uh, when you put two things together? Sorry, the word's not coming to me. It's not compilation, but um, she begins to encompass what we call Isis Hathor, which is a combination of two goddesses. So Hathor is the wife of Ra, and she is seen as the mother nurturer. She's often represented as a cow. Uh, she wears the horns of a bull that has to do with fertility and procreation. But over time, Isis actually becomes associated with her or assimilated with her, actually, or assimilates her. And so Isis begins to wear the, um, I don't know if you've ever seen um in Egyptian paintings, Isis wears a big sort of round sun on her head with horns. And that's really the symbol of, of um, Hathor's marriage to Ra, who is the sun god. And that idea of fertility, um, of the bull, of the cow, of fertility and nurturing. So Isis in the beginning um, is associated as mother and wife. And then she assimilates all of these other um, capabilities because her mythology expands more and more over time, over millennia. So um, she is the sister wife of Osiris. So she is the daughter of Nut and Get. So Nut and Get are sort of the um, creators of the entire pantheon. And they create Osiris, Isis, Set, and Nephthys. These are the four siblings that they have. And the four siblings couple up. So Osiris and Isis are brother sister consorts, and Net, I'm sorry, and Seth and Nephthys are brother sister um, consorts. So you have these relationships of brother sister consorts that make up a great deal of the power in the pantheon. So Isis and Osiris are together and they they're sort of the power couple um in this family they outshine if i could say set and nephthys in fact nephthys becomes so jealous and angry with set because set is so obsessed with actually killing his brother osiris so there's a lot of family drama um that she disguises herself as isis and tries to seduce set thinking that Set is more attracted to Isis. But Set is not even interested in that because he's planning the murder of his own brother. And so he ignores her, shuns her, even disguised as Isis. But the interesting thing that happens there is Osiris sees her and he's attracted to her as Isis, thinking that's his wife. And they copulate. And in fact, that's how Anubis, the god Anubis, is born. And in fear of Set's anger or rage, Nephthys actually asks um, Isis, so tells her, yeah, you know, I slept with your husband, my other brother, um, but, and then we have Anubis, is it possible for you and Osiris to adopt Anubis um, as your son? And that way, Set doesn't kill him because Set's on a war path to kill everyone, as we'll see. And they do, they do. And so then Osiris becomes the father of both Horus and Anubis, who are major players in the Egyptian um, mythology in, in the Egyptian pantheon. So Anubis, 
sometimes called Anpu, is the ancient Egyptian god of the dead. He's often represented as a jackal or like what we call a dog. He has a dog head and the figure of a, a, a body of a man. Um, in the early period, he was quite significant as the god of the dead, but then he was later overshadowed by Osiris. And so this explains the story that I was saying to you where, Anu- where Osiris adopts Anubis explains that overshadowing that took place over time because then Osiris becomes the god of the dead and Anubis takes a secondary uh, role. And Horus uh, is, a, is, I would say, sort of the Jesus of the Egyptian religion. Um, he, it was bel- he's often in a form of a falcon and it was believed that his right eye was the sun or morning star which represented power. And then his left eye was the moon and evening star, which represented healing. And these, his cult was one of the, I would say only second to his mother's cult um, in Egyptian tradition, because he became the God of the sun, the God of light, the God of everything and salvation, of course, alongside with his mother. So what happens in the story of um, Isis, yeah, and especially in her place as the mother of of Horus. So there's a couple of things that happen as the assimilation of Isis Hathor happens. Isis sometimes is also associated as in relationship with Ra. Now Ra is the son of God. You might have heard of him uh, referred to as Amun Ra, um, and he's the sun god, the the disc, the sun disc god. And he has a great deal of power as well in, in the Egyptian pantheon. And Isis is said to have learned her magic by learning his Ra's real name. So remember how we talked about in the past about how names have power and how it's important that language has power and words have power and that naming or knowing somebody knowing your name has some control over you. So one of the things that um, there's a story about Isis wanting to learn Ra's real word, real name, to use it as power. So what she does is she has him uh, bitten by a snake and poisoning him with uh, with a snake bike and bite. And in order to save him, you know, he's saying, please save me, heal me, etc. She says, okay, well, tell me your, no, sorry. She allows him to use his real name to save himself. So she, but she's standing around listening to this, right? So she has the snake bite him. Ra realizes he's being poisoned and he uses his real name to save himself and Isis is around and so she learns his real name. In doing that, then she uses his real name in incantations of magic. And in fact, later on, her priests and priestesses are said to know his secret name and that in using his secret name in incantations, they could also create all kinds of miracles and magic as well. So one day, you know, the four of them set Osiris, Isis, and Nephthys um, have a party. And Plutarch tells us that at this party, Set builds a sarcophagus or a, a coffin and says to um, Osiris or teases Osiris, I bet you can't get in the sarcophagus. I bet it doesn't fix, it doesn't fit you, blah, blah, blah. And Osiris and him go back and forth for a little bit. And then Osiris says, yeah, yeah, no, I bet you it can. And he gets into the sarcophagus. At which point, Set locks him in. No one else sees this and t- takes him to some place. 
and then proceeds to chop up his body in the sarcophagus. So some stories say it's in the sarcophagus. Some story says he actually chops up the sarcophagus. Either way, he proceeds to chop up his body into 14 pieces. And then to make sure that no one ever finds him, he throws these 14 pieces all over the land. So that in different parts of the land, so that nobody ever finds him. Isis is at the party. She notices her husband missing, her consort missing. She asks around. Nobody can find him. Days go by. She can't find him. Nobody's saying anything about him. So she learns that her husband has been killed. Yeah, the set begins to brag about the murder and saying to her that you'll never find him because I've spread his pieces all over the world. No one can ever find him. It's finished. It's over. Now I am the only son in this pantheon. So Isis is like, yeah, right. So she goes to Ra and says, tell me where the 14 pieces of my husband are. And of course, Ra is like, I don't want to get involved in your family drama, blah, blah, blah. So she threatens Ra to use his real name to force him to tell her where these bodies, body pieces are. And so Ra gives in. I says, okay, okay, don't use my real name because he doesn't want to be manipulated by her. And in a way, though, she, he, he is. But anyways, um, and says, okay, okay, fine. I will show you where the 14 pieces are. Um, and, you know, you go do your thing. So we have this image of Isis collecting the 14 body pieces of her dead husband. But there are some other stories. As she collects the pieces, there is a sort of side story that she could find everything except his, how do I say this, penis, yeah? So she makes that out of clay, okay? Now, the, <laughs> this gets a little bit mm, interesting. She makes his penis out of clay, puts the 13 pieces, let's say, back together. And then while she's putting them back, him back together, in order to breathe life into him, she has sex with him. Yes, with the clay part. Yes. And as she's breathing life into him, using her magic to breathe life into him, she becomes pregnant with Horus. Yes, I know I'm taking you down a weird and interesting path. Yeah. So she becomes pregnant with Horus out of this corpse sexual encounter, but Osiris is coming back to life. But because Osiris is missing a piece of himself, he can never be restored fully to life, which explains why he becomes the god of the underworld. So he spends his time in the underworld, even though he's technically alive and resurrected, he's no longer complete. He's no longer the same as he was before. And Isis is pregnant with Horus. Now, when Set finds out about this pregnancy and about Horus, he then sets on his anger, and of course, the resurrection of Osiris. And Osiris arguably being placed in an even more important position than he was before, because now he's the god of the underworld um, and taken on this, this prominent position. Set is furious. And so what he does is he tries to continually kill Horus. Yeah. So Horus, for example, when he's a child, he's stung by a scorpion and Isis has to work magic to heal him. And she does a, a bunch of miracles to keep him alive and make sure he grows into adulthood. And even then in adulthood, she continues to protect him um, and be his sort of um, 
emperor mother, godmother, um, and taking care of him because Set is continually trying to hurt him. Although as an adult, Horus becomes this significant um, god of almost light and light and dark, actually, light and being and healing. And so he becomes a really powerful god and he gains more and more popularity over time on his own. So less threatened by Set is what I mean. So think about how fascinating that is. I, I don't, and the reason why I said at the beginning of this podcast that ISIS is unlike any, anyone else is because ISIS has the power to resurrect a dead body, okay? So there's a heal, it's not just healing, actually. It's calling back the soul of the individual or the spirit or the essence of the individual into the physical body. So she has the power to do that simultaneously allowing that body to impregnate her. Okay. So then she becomes mother, right? And then gives birth to this God that is, you know, part of the, the sacred trinity of Egypt. And the sacred trinity of Egypt is Osiris, Isis, and Horus. And so, but she is the key in a way that not... Actually, now that I think about that knot, that really is a three-way knot. She is really the key or the knot of that trinity, the knot of life. And the knot of life or of Isis is really referring to not just her ability to give birth physically or organically, but her ability to bring back life to that which is dead, which is an ability that I cannot think off the top of my head. Any other goddess or god, other than later on the Christian god with Jesus, really performs okay so this is how fascinating um her mythology is and of course now you can understand why her mystery cults were about salvation and immortality because who else could teach you about immortality and salvation other than the priests and priestesses of um isis who not only practiced her magic but also wore their hair in these knots of magic and these knots of life So then we can see how Isis's mythology plays a key role in the use of magic, how she learns magic, how she uses magic, but also plays a key role in her power over the throne as the wife and then mother of the most important gods in the pantheon, and then connects her with that assimilation of Hathor, which is very maternal, um, which is an image of a of a mothering deity, a nourishing deity. So there are two main images of, or two main depictions of Isis. The first one, which is the earliest one, shows her kneeling or sometimes hovering with these arm wings, these wings on her arms that are outspread, okay? Um, And we often see the Egyptian hieroglyphic, like I said, of the throne on top of her head. Uh, sometimes her skin is also blue in this Im- in these images, uh, which always refers to celestial beings or celestial power. Now, her wings are important because the wings of Isis symbolize either female falcons. Of course, that's an association with har- Horus or kites, which are birds of prey that have the cries that are reminiscent of distraught women. In this way, the wings represent both power and mourning, especially her mourning over Osiris when she couldn't find him and she was looking for him. And I want you to imagine almost like a bird with a bird's eye view looking for these pieces of her husband and collecting them. 
So in a way, they also represent a resurrective power of Isis because she fans her wings to give birth or bring to, to give breath back to her dead husband. Yeah, this is sometimes the wings are sometimes green uh, in color and green actually in Egyptian art symbolizes life and resurrection. Sometimes Isis is actually green herself or the wings are green. So then the, the, the wings also symbolize a kind of safety because they're, they're depicted as outspread, which is a protective gesture in Egyptian art. And so in this way, she represents both resurrective power, her grief, and the protection of the dead. So we often see her famously, uh, we see her on um, the, the tomb or the sarcophagus of Ramses III. Uh, at the bottom of one of his sarcophagi uh, with her wings. So we sometimes see her on the sarcophagi of emperors or kings or people that um, had nobility and were killed. And, and that was her wings are often outspread in those images. And that's, again, that protection of the dead or protection of um, of you in the afterlife or the divine in the afterlife. Yeah. The second and probably the more popular depiction of her is more sculpture and that is a depiction of her wearing the headdress of the cow with horns like we talked about in a solar disc which is that headdress of Hathor Um, and she is usually seating sitting down on a throne suckling horse or she's standing with a rattle in her hand and this depiction uh, again sometimes her skin is also blue in these images um, and or, or the whole, actually the whole sculpture is blue. Um, and sometimes on her girdle, she has the knot of Isis or the Tiet. Um, and again, this, this is the nurturing mother representation. It's the more popular one. I'm going to talk about it at length in a, in a minute. Um, but it's the more popular, I think, depiction as we move forward towards modernity um, and Isis's role becomes more significant in the all-encompassing mother figure as Horace's popularity grows. She becomes more significant in her ability. Of course, her ability to resurrect and give life is still important, but in her ability to nurture and protect Horace. So these are the two main depictions that you'll see. They're both the same figure. It's just a different representation based on, you know, whatever... Um, the meaning of the hieroglyph or the date of the hieroglyph um, is at. There are numerous beliefs and rituals um, around ISIS. I want to talk a little bit about uh, one particular belief in the power of in the power of words, and then I want to tell you a little bit about two major rituals of hers or festivals. So the the number one I think source of belief is in ISIS's ability to use magic. And, you know, magic has an interesting connotation today and, yeah, especially today, but even in the past sort of millennia. And it's associated with darkness or uh, demonness or there's, there's a negative connotation. You know, even when Harry Potter came out, for example, with all the magic of witches, uh, many countries banned the movies and the books of Harry Potter because they saw magic as something negative. And I think that's very much under the patriarchal umbrella of control, particularly because magic is wielded majorly or a majority by women. 
shaman, women shaman, women priestesses, women oracles, women prophetess, exact, etc. Isis is unique because magic is what made her popular. And and now that I'm thinking of it, perhaps that's why her she sort of become lost in, in history of mythology and buried under almost Greek mythology, which sort of encompasses all of all that the Western world knows of myth. But her ability to use magic is something that's celebrated. But more importantly, more importantly, and I would argue most importantly, her ability to use magic with words, powerful words, is what really makes it or what makes her worship and her power so threatening. Remember uh, when we talked about Lilith, I was telling you guys that Yahweh creates with words and that the creation with words becomes primary in a patriarchal world. So that creation of the body is secondary and organic and ill, but creation with words is about rationality and creativity and all those kinds of things. Well, Isis, of course, predates all of Yahweh and all of that, you know, by millennia. Um, she, her power to use words to create magic is an elevated power. So when we think about magic, we tend to, especially in sort of the last thousand years, we tend to think about herbs. We tend to think about using like chicken bones and dead chickens. I don't know why I keep saying chickens, but, you know, a blood, like organic objects, organic materials, you know, blend together or cook together. There is still a chant. Of course, there's still words, but we tend to think of something that's a bit more material. And in the worship of Isis or in the practice of, of the worship of Isis, it's words, incantations that are key, um, not so much items. And so I want to draw that back to our discussion of how important language is, how important words are, how much power words have. We've talked about how much power names have, but how much power words have. Um, and I want you to think about that. Even today in our language, words are power. There are words that evoke images, emotions, um, memories. There are words that evoke all of these things in us still today. And if someone has the key to those words or to your own sort of collection of words that trigger you, let's say, or actually even the, the idea of triggering, you know, when you have to put trigger in a tweet or a post because the words or the material that comes next uh, may be hurtful to some, again, plays into that importance of words. So Isis is one of these goddesses that has so much power because she knows the words, right? That brings me then to the rituals. So there's two rituals of resurrection and salvations that I want to talk about. These are the great festivals of Isis. Of course, there was always festivals of Isis, um, but the two great festivals, the first one is celebrated on the spring equinox, which is to celebrate the return of life to the world, which is around March 20th, which is something that we just celebrated a few days ago, um, the spring equinox or the coming of spring. And this is an important ritual um, because, again, it has to do with resurrection of the earth, of agriculture, of life, and it has to do with the giving of life. And so, and this is actually, we don't really talk about it 
but because then we could be here all day. But this is connected to Easter celebrations. So Easter celebrations, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself, why do um, we have eggs at Easter or bunnies at Easter or these kinds of things that really have nothing to do with Jesus or Bethlehem or any of those things. And all of those items are connected to a pre-Christian, what we would call a pagan, and I say that in quotation marks, a pagan tradition that was connected to the time of resurrection, which of course is uh, the spring equinox, when the earth that was dead comes back to life. And as, as you know from last week's podcast, the Greeks celebrated that based on Persephone's return from the dead and Demeter allowing life to grow. Well, here we have the worship of Isis, which arguably predates Demeter. And again, it is a celebration of resurrection and life. So it's interesting how human beings celebrate the same time or around the same time over and over again under different umbrellas of whatever worship is being practiced at the time. Yeah. But I don't know if you feel it with the spring equinox or the coming spring. You cannot help but feel this burst of energy, this feeling like you want to clean, you want to plant, you want to do something, you're optimistic, you're, you're feeling it in the air, the smell of the earth, the smell of everything around you, and you feel positive. And that is a feeling that is primordial in all of us. We feel this intrinsically, instinctually. And so you can imagine why it would be celebrated under whatever umbrella it's being celebrated, but you can imagine why it would be celebrated because human beings feel it. And no matter how much technology we've had, we feel this celebration. We feel this connection. Yeah. And we must celebrate it. We can't help it. We must. The second festival and the one that I think is especially significant takes place um, on October 31st and lasts until November 3rd. During this four-day period, a passion play is acted out over the death of Osiris and the magic of Isis returning him to life. And so during the first day, some actors will impersonate Isis, her son Horus, as well as other gods, and as they search the, the world for the 14 body parts of Osiris. And then on the second and third days, there is a reenactment of the rebirth of Osiris. And on the fourth day, which is November 3rd, a wild rejoicing over the success of Isis and the coming of the newly immortal Osiris. So the belief is then during this festival, by offering the strong devotion to Isis, she may return you to life as well, should you die, and you shall experience eternal happiness under her nurturing care, just as Osiris did. So there's a couple of things that I want you to think about there. Number one, the fact that Isis is the source of salvation. So the resurrection of the soul, certainly, perhaps in everyday people, not the body, the way that she did to Osiris, but the resurrection of the soul. The excuse me, the second part of that, let me get a drink for a second. The second part of that is that it takes place on October 31st. So October 31st, of course, in the modern world, especially in the West, is Halloween. But October 31st also celebrates the festival, festival uh, of Samayan, which is the thinning of the veil. So on October 31st, that was the night in which the veil is the thinnest 
of the year between this reality and the reality of the spirit world. And so in the old days, for example, pre-Christian days, it was believed that during this night, October 31st, spirits had the ability to cross over into this reality because the veil was so thin. And in fact, one of the reasons why we uh, dress up as ghosts and gremlins and other creatures was that if you were outside at night on October 31st, you wanted to blend in with the spirits that were walking around um, so that you wouldn't be taken, let's say, and pulled into the other side of the veil and not be able to come back to this reality. So I want you to think about how incredible it is that three, 4,000 years ago, people were celebrating this October 31st to November 3rd date um, or time as a festival of resurrection, as a festival of salvation, as a festival of crossing the veil. So Osiris is on the other side of the veil because he's dead. And Isis, using her magic, is able to pull him through the veil by putting his body back together and breathing life into him. And then there's a celebration, of course, of life. So it's an incredible connection, I think, to our modern celebrations of Halloween that we never hear about. You know, certainly I never heard about until I started reading about mythology and being interested in Isis, particularly around goddesses and, and their power and particularly their festivals. You know, because I think we often talk about mythology and we tell the story of someone's mythology or divinity's mythologies, but we don't pay as much attention to the festivals that are celebrated um, and maybe the reason why they're celebrated and also how those festivals have been assimilated into our modern day culture. So I thought this was really fascinating. Uh, so not only does ISIS have a celebration at the spring equinox, which like I've just said, is, is, a, is a, a time of renewal and strength and, and building, but also at the fall uh, post-harvest time when the veil is thin and that is a resurrection um, festival where she brings back to life her loved one. And of course, don't forget, she also impregnates herself with Horus. So we've looked at the importance of Isis in her time. And as she moves forward through time in the Greek world, she becomes especially important and again, assimilates other goddesses or is assimilated with other goddesses. Um, and more and more temples are built in her honor and more and more people worship her because it seems that human beings continually look for salvation, especially as we move forward in time. I would say that primordial human beings were very concerned with where they came from. And so they thought about the cosmic womb and the cosmic space as a pre-birth space. They were quite confident that after death, everyone goes to their ancestral lands or returns to the source of life. But as we move forward in modernity, we see more and more questions about where do we go after death? And so then more and more concerns with salvation and the issues of salvation. And then these, these gods, these divinities that are associated with salvation become the popular gods that we continue to worship even today. And so then that brings me to Christianity and the last assimilation of ISIS. So 
one of the names of Isis, one of the popular names of Isis, other than goddess of the throne, is also queen of heaven. And today in Christianity, the queen of heaven is, of course, often uh, the Virgin Mary. And there is this depiction that I want to talk about um, of the mother and son depiction. So if you're not on YouTube, which is fine, there are two images on the screen, one of Isis and Horus and one of Mary and Jesus. On the one side, Isis and Horus is depicted as follows. Isis is green, right? So she's made out of a green material. Horus is sort of gold and sitting on her lap. You probably have seen this, uh, though you may not recognize it right away. And her Isis is holding on to one of her breasts and Horus is on her lap as though she's about to breastfeed him. Isis and Horus both at their third eye, the center of their foreheads, have a snake, almost like a king cobra coming out. Um, and this really depicts the association of snakes and immortality and snakes and wisdom. Snakes have always been the symbol of wisdom and immortality. And we haven't done really symbols yet, although I do hope to do a series of symbols in which snakes for sure will be one of our podcasts. But snakes have always been a source of knowledge, immortality, and fertility. And of course, it makes sense, especially for goddesses. Uh, there's a connection between goddesses and snakes. And so it makes sense that uh, in the Garden of Eden, for example, in the Christian and this Abrahamic story um, of creation, there's a snake that is speaking to Eve, uh, because the snake would have um, knowledge of what is going on. And it actually entices Eve with knowledge. God forbid Eve have some knowledge. Um, and this is a, based on a very old tradition of the association of goddesses with and women with knowledge of immortality, of fertility, of healing. Horus also wears the same snake on his forehead. And of course, he inherits that knowledge from his mother. Um, so it's important that the knowledge is passed down. Yeah, Last time we talked about knowledge between mothers and daughters being passed down. Here we have knowledge between mother and sons. On the other side, we have an image of Mary and a toddler, toddler Jesus. Um, Mary, of course, is fully dressed, fully covered. Um, and she wears the royal colors of red, blue, and gold. So those are colors, colors of life, royalty, and divinity. And Jesus is a cute toddler in white in like a white robe, of course, the image of purity. Um, and they are both holding on to sacred hearts. Um, and Mary has 12 stars, a 12 star halo above her head. So I want to talk a little bit about the importance of these two images, because the image of Mary and Jesus is absolutely a copy and assimilation of this very old image of Isis and Horus. Isis and Horus is the very first image of mother and son. It is the very first image of salvation through mother and son. Um, and it is the very first symbol of the Trinity that involves mother, father, mother, son. Okay. While Mary and Jesus are also mother and son, and people have argued that they also are a type of salvation couple. I hate to say that word because people always associate that with some kind of sexuality, but Mary is, especially in Catholicism, seen as a co-redemptrix, that is someone that can offer redemption and salvation and healing. 
alongside with Jesus. And in fact, interestingly, in the Bible, the only person that Jesus ever listens to, or the only person that demands something from Jesus, and he does it is his mother at the wedding, uh, where she says, you know, we don't have enough wine, you're gonna have to do something about it. He turns around and he's, you know, all like, Mom, I can't do anything about it. My hour has not yet come. You know, you guys might have heard that quote. But then he turns around and makes wine from water and and satisfies his mother's request. It is the only time in the New Testament for Christians where anyone demands something of Jesus and he completes that task. Yeah. So in many ways, Mary and Jesus are interconnected in a similar way, although be it under this long-held patriarchal, conservative, sort of closed-off ideology But it's almost like, even though the Christian church assimilated the images and purpose of Isis and Horus, they could not get rid of the symbol of mother and son as saviors, as a cohesive um, couple that is able to save the world. Um, and so while, for example, here in these images, Mary is fully clothed and Isis is not clothed. In fact, the fact that Isis is breastfeeding without clothes reminds me of our modern issues with breastfeeding. Um, you know, and this idea, this, this sort of closed off idea, this conservative idea that women shouldn't be breastfeeding in public or that breastfeeding is somehow like an ill thing. And I'm sure you've seen this in social media and in the news and in other places where um, breastfeeding for a long time was seen as something that you should do like in a closet in your home where no one else can see you. Um, And now again, women are starting to be more public about breastfeeding. And a lot of it has to do with that Christianization of shame uh, and also the the patriarchal idea of shame and the idea that breastfeeding is something that is almost animalistic, you know, oh, well, you know, uh, like cows breastfeed in public and dogs breastfeed, you know, the idea that animals breastfeed in public, but women, they should be hidden, you know, it should be covered. We don't want to see that. Um, And I mean, we could go on at length about the sexualization of breasts in one way, and then the shaming of breasts in the way of the mothering, but we won't do that here. We'll leave that for another podcast. Uh, But it's, it's, it, it does say something about our culture that the ancients had no problem visualizing Isis breastfeeding her son and in turn breastfeeding the emperors and the kings of Egypt. Uh, While in Christianity, the same image is duplicated, but fully, fully clothed. In fact, Mary even wears a headdress in this image. Um, So that's, that's a really interesting aspect. The other interesting aspect is the 12 stars of heaven that are around uh, Mary's head, and we often see 12 stars uh, around Mary's head as sort of a halo. And actually, I interestingly, in the in- incantations of Isis, she is said to be wearing 12 stars. Now, in the incantations of in the original sort of pre-Christian days, the idea of 12 stars had to do with divinity, of course, and had to do with um, cosmic primordial power. Uh, 12 is a powerful number, and it reflects sort of that perfect, a 
actually it reflects perfection is a good way of saying it. Perfect cosmic balance. Now with Mary, she inherits this halo, but her halo is much more male centered, you know, and has to do with either the 12 disciples of Jesus, people associated with different things, the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, often people talk about how this halo of stars is, is uh, connected to her purity and uh, her have, having always being pure and then forever being pure. So people have drawn the 12 star symbols on a divinity that they adore without really knowing or sort of giving these 12 stars their own definition or interpretation without really knowing the ancient connections, but intrinsically knowing them. I don't know if that makes sense. This is what we do with symbols. We find symbols, like for example, I could walk through a museum of art and point out all the ways in which Isis, for example, consciously or unconsciously has influenced the artist. Because as human beings, we share in symbolic ideology. We like certain symbols, we connect to them. We don't know why. Um, and we draw them or we create magnificent pieces of art with them. And if we will look deeper into stories of old or mythologies or different practices that humans have been doing for millennia, we can see that connection. So that's one of my favorite things I think about mythology is to allow people to connect things they've always resonated with intrinsically or instinctually with an ancient mythology that maybe they were not aware of. It's fascinating. It's a bit Jungian, you know, because he talks about the collective unconscious and the idea that we all share in this sort of symbolic power and this collective thoughts. But it's also really fascinating because I think people have this little aha moment when they can connect something that they're looking at or something that they've always loved or have always felt really deeply about. And then you can see its roots trace back before you know, this image was conceived and before, you know, the umbrella of whatever religion or culture is there, you can trace it back and you can see your connection to actually your ancestral um, culture and worship. And I think that is the most fascinating aspect of it all. Um, I think that's what keeps me doing this gig and this podcast, to be honest. In fact, that's what inspired me to do this podcast is to have these conversations outside of the box, right? Because in the classroom, you do, you teach a lot of academics, which is the people, places, things, and times. But to have conversations on a level where you're really connecting these stories with our real life experiences with our real life spiritual and instinctual connections um, is really where I think is the most fascinating aspect of ancient history and studying ancient history. Because I guess for me, I like to chase down the original story. <laughs> I like to find out why are things the way they are today and, and where did that come from? Right? Because nothing's in a vacuum. People just don't come up with an image and go, oh, look at this image or, or come up with a story. Oh, look at this story. It's, it's new, right? It's never new. <laughs> it's never new, actually. It's never new. It's always some kind of an assimilation of or combination of something that came before. And I guess for me, I've always wanted to get to the very root, the very beginning of that. And so, uh, and so I hope 
I'm doing that a little bit for some of you guys in a, in a, in a fun way, you know, you don't have to take a test or remember names or dates or anything like that. So, um, so I hope I'm doing that uh, for you guys today. So that's really the wrap up on ISIS. Um, there is, of course, so much more about ISIS that is fascinating, but I think that's good for you to kind of get an idea of who she is and, and what she's done and how fascinating. And also maybe ask the question of why don't we know more about her? You know, why don't we learn more about her, right? Uh, and so maybe that's the beginning. And hopefully you'll see her in future things from now on, yeah? So thank you for joining me today. I hope that you enjoyed learning about ISIS. Uh, and hopefully you'll join me next time when we take a look at either Kybele or Artemis. So I wanted to do Artemis because you all know she's my beige, my everything. But Kybele has been, or stories about Kybele and her priests um, have been all over, like, I don't know, have been in my peripheral view lately, almost like she's saying to me, like, do a story on me, do a story on me. And so I think I might do Kaibali next week. My plan, of course, is to do like four-part series. So we'll do goddesses. And then maybe I want to do like a four-part series on symbols coming up after this. I want to do maybe caves, snakes, trees, and pyramids or triangles. Ooh, triangles. That'll be fun. Um, and so kind of do four-part series um, throughout the season. But if we don't get to Artemis this season, I'm sure we'll get to her next season. Um, but Kaibali is like calling to me. Yeah. Uh, and her priests. So maybe we'll do that next week. Um, so I hope that you'll join me and again, feel free to ask, send me any questions or thoughts, or if you're really enjoying this podcast, please like and share with everyone. Um, and also maybe send me a note that you like it. Um, it always helps me to know like what things are working, what things are not working. I'm open to any of your constructive ideas and criticisms um as well check out my patreon page where uh there's bonus material and extra things that uh, i do in my spare time <laughs> that hopefully you'll like um and that's it for today guys so have a great day have a great weekend and i will see you next week talk soon bye